Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I once had an imaginary friend named Bigo. He was a cartoon duck, kind of like Donald Duck, but with brown feathers, and he wore a lot more tweed, more clothes in general. He used to write me postcards from Michigan to Chicago, and when he'd visit and I didn't get them, he'd tell me they got lost in the mail. I would spend hours drawing intricate pictures and my scribbles to make words. I had no idea how to write yet. When he came to visit, I told him mine got lost in the mail too. I had no idea how to write a postcard or to actually send one. I don't think I really understood the purpose of an imaginary friend. We weren't like Kelvin and Hobbes. We couldn't have made an amazing comic strip. Pretty much he came to visit and he would talk to me about any adventures he had. I'd tell him some stuff that was going on for me. My parents would once in a while ask me when something was missing or broken if Bigo had done it. <laughs> I thought this was really weird because I was pretty sure they didn't believe that I had this friend named Bigo. And I was an only child, so if something was lost or missing, I was definitely the person to ask. <laughs> they also didn't get, even though I told them a lot, Bigo was an adult like them. Bigo did not break that dish, hide it under the rug, trying to figure out what to do with it, forget about it, and then get it discovered later. That was me, absolutely. Bigo stopped visiting probably when I got friends. <laughs> and honestly, I like to think that he's in Michigan at some vineyard having a few glasses of wine while he's retired. I've never been to Michigan with the vineyards, but Someday, I hope that I am going to go there after a glass or two, and I'm going to see him. And he's going to be sitting bellied up to the bar. He obviously can't look like a cartoon duck then, because that would just be very odd. But I'm going to sit down, and we're going to start talking, and I'm going to all of a sudden realize it's him between, between the tweed and his laugh. I'll never be able to tell anyone that I met my imaginary friend when I'm an adult. No one would believe me. I used to play these intricate imagination games, like most children do. I wasn't into Barbies, and I wasn't into playing like family or house. The whole idea of having kids and a husband in the traditional sense and taking them to school and changing diapers and baths, that just sounded like a lot of work, and I didn't really like that at all. Instead, my backyard was mapped out as a mystical land. There was this giant rock that at one point was much taller than me that I called Skull Rock. There was a triangle of a garden with a birdbath that was the Garden of Eden. There was a row of trees that divided my neighborhood's, my backyard to my, to my neighbor's house. And that clearly was the border between fairy and the real world. Now, I mostly spent my time in this little triangle of a land that happened from the 
the deck stairs. It was tiny. It's where the gypsies lived. (laughs) I was always a gypsy. Sometimes I was a powerful witch gypsy, but most of the time I was a gypsy just trying to get by with my fake fire and reading people's palms. (laughs) I convinced people to play this game with me, and I played it for hours, and I probably was one of the last people to play this game. One day, I saw some of my friends sitting behind the Garden of Eden, and they were talking. So my gypsy self, I snuck up on them, and they were talking about boys. They were talking about boys from our school in the Garden of Eden. You can't do that. (laughs) So I confronted them, and I was like, why aren't you pretending? Now, they wanted to keep talking about the boys. They didn't even want to try to put it into our imagination game. I got a little angry. No, I got a lot angry. I started yelling and getting red, and I was the only one angry, so I looked ridiculous. And I started saying, you have to use your imagination. They didn't really want to. And I kicked them out of my house, well, my whole backyard. I was like, you don't use your imagination, you're out of here. So the next day, I had to see him at the bus stop, in school, at the cafeteria, back at the bus stop, everywhere there was reality. Luckily, I found out about books. When you open a book, you get to imagine with that author, and they have done a wonderful job mapping out a world for you. I read R.L. Stein's Fear Street. I went to trashy romance historical novels. Anne Rice's Vampires and Witches in New Orleans, and then Charles DeLint had this wonderful made-up city in Canada that I loved visiting. This really helped me get through high school. Because the thing is, I got to be inducted my freshman year into the Dead Dads Club. Yep, membership is absolutely mandatory if you know your dad. And for that long one year of watching someone I love die of cancer, I was even able to pretend my way out of that a bit. My dad was a strong, silent type. He traveled for work a lot. He wasn't that guy in the hospital bed in our TV room. He wasn't this guy that was talking to things that weren't there with hallucinations. He wasn't somebody crying because dead relatives were visiting him. And then he died, and my life forever changed, but the world didn't change at all. The phone would ring, and I would get to pretend sometimes that it just might be him on his travels. And so I'd pick it up. I was very good at pretending. It wasn't him. But it was telemarketers. And I loved those telemarketers. (laughs) I got to tell them, no, I'm sorry, he's not here. Maybe call next week, he's traveling right now. So anytime that I could feel at all a little bit sad about what was going on in my life, there was always a telemarketer that could cheer me up. (laughs) Now, I knew my reality in high school. I didn't live in a fantasy land completely. I had a dead dad, and I lived with my mentally ill mother. I knew there was no way I was going to pretend my way out of this. And... I did grow up to become a functioning adult with a job and a career 
and a husband and children. And then I had my midlife crisis. I was 35. I know, it sounds like I'm an overachiever, but it's not. It was 100% me underachieving because in this morbid way, when you have a parent that dies before they're 50, you just know that there's a time clock. It might not really be my time clock, but I was a little concerned it could be mine. And there were two major life changes going on. I had a husband and three wonderful children. I had a career I liked, and everything was going great. And then I was moving to Des Moines, and I was pregnant for the fourth time. <laughs> now, there was nothing about Des Moines itself. It was just I knew that I was moving away from all my friends, family, the career I had. I knew that there was no way I could be a junior high English teacher while taking care of four kids while my husband is a little bit of a workaholic without any sort of family support. I had no clue what I was going to do. That's not something I wanted to feel at 35. So I did a wonderful job pretending in front of my kids, this is going to be a great adventure. We're going to have so much fun. You are going to love it. And we do all love it. But let me tell you, at the time, I was so scared. So I said to my husband, you know, when you're pregnant and complaining a little, I was like, I can't believe you're moving us somewhere without a children's museum. <laughs> there was tons to complain about, but that was the biggest complaint I had. And he looked at me and he just said, maybe you should start one. That'd be a nice project for you. A nice project? A nice project is organizing a closet. Mm -hmm. It's upcycling a dresser. It is alphabetizing my spices. <laughs> Starting a children's museum is not a nice project. But instead of the long, huge list of to-dos I had to do to get us moved here, I started imagining, what would I want in a children's museum? The seed had been planted. It wasn't until months later, after all the hard work had been done of packing and selling a house and buying a house and unpacking, registering my kids for school and camps and finding doctors and, oh yeah, having the fourth baby, mm -hmm, that I woke up and I realized I was sad, and I was lonely. Now, I'm an only child. I loved being an only child. I didn't know anything different. And when we had our first baby, I remember looking into her eyes and being like, oh, maybe she should be an only child. And my husband looked at me so sad and concerned. Why? She would be sad and lonely. So I found myself now in Des Moines with four kids, hardly any time to myself, and no friends. And that is when I found myself sad and lonely. So I woke up and I decided I need a friend. And that's when Biko showed up, my imaginary friend. No, I needed a real friend. <laughs> So I woke up and I decided today's the day. I am going to go to the scheduled play date. 
I am going to find one mom to come away from the group with me. I'm going to convince this one mom, any of them, okay, to be my friend by like, we'll go get some food. And then if I can isolate this mom from the group, I can have a friend. Even when I was thinking and planning this, it sounded like a serial killer or a stalker. <laughs> it was the only thing getting, through, getting me through that day so that I didn't just go and take the colicky baby and the toddler and sit in front of the TV and cry. So I get to the play date. It's at this historical train that has a lot of rust. I'm not sure why my two-year-old is running around this historical train. I mean, I know I took her there, but I had made the deal. Today is the day. I start out calmly, like, oh, do you want some food? You want to get some food? By the end, I'm desperate. One mom agreed to get some food with me afterwards. Thank you, Laura. So we sat at this pizza place, and we had five kids with us under the, um, under the age of five running around as we're trying to eat pizza. And we're talking, and one of her daughters has this imagination game that she keeps coming over and telling her mom how the superhero cat, you know, is fighting this evil villain. And I watch this mom interact and have this imagination game with her daughter. And I was kind of annoyed. <laughs> like, why was this superhero cat, who's supposedly a super, interrupting adults talking all the time with these silly problems? All right. Imagination saved me throughout my life, and here I was annoyed at this kid having this special imagination game with their special adult. Now, one thing did come out of that conversation. Laura did mention, I wish Des Moines had a children's museum. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be friends. <laughs> So we st I started imagining more. I'd be looking at things and being like, what could we use for this? Laura and I started gathering up treasures, you know, and we started, like, finding ways to be like, what can we make with this and what can we do with that? And our kids started getting to play in these places that we were mapping out, just like I had my backyard mapped out as a kid. I got into one small fight with my husband, where I ended up saying something about you have to pretend or use your imagination when I tried to convince him to build me a boat. I had to explain, it doesn't need to be water-worthy. It's for pretend. And we did. We started a children's museum, and kids came, and they played, and it was awesome. Our kids then all of a sudden got to play the same types of intricate games of imagination in this place that we mapped out. And in, sometimes we'd be invited in, you know, superhero cats need help sometimes. But other times we just got to imagine what else are we going to do. And we got to meet other adults who wanted to imagine. And we got to do more and more things. And then COVID hit. And it was tough because COVID was hard. And we closed down. But what we did instead was we got out all of our tools, the saws, the, the, oh gosh, this is me not knowing what they are, the table saws, everything possible. And we pulled it out into the museum floor and we got to start imagining even more. We did farmer's markets and farmhouses. We did a conveyor belt pizza oven powered by like little dragon flames supposedly heating the, the pizzas. It was delightful. 
And COVID was a miserable, horrible time, but it was also this time that imagination called me over like a Red Rover game. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to be a part of this. And I started writing for hours. And when I sat in any sort of a meeting, I started pretending, you know, the backstories of people I saw. Anytime I'm even a moment bored, I know now I sit there and I write poetry and storylines because not just to keep my boredom away, but the fact is, imagination is magic. And who doesn't need more magic in their life? Thank you. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.